And this is part of a bigger conversation that's been playing out around ethics and AI and when it's appropriate to release a product um, and whether or not, uh, particularly some of the bigger releases, whether or not the companies releasing those products really have a clear idea of how they could impact their users and the world more broadly. So I do think that's concerning and I do think it's unleashed just a whole new way of playing the game that none of us, frankly, really understand, including the people designing the products to some extent. Unless you're living under a rock, you know that ChatGPT, OpenAI's text-generating AI chatbot, has taken the world by storm. And with it, a whole conversation surrounding artificial intelligence, its opportunities, and yes, perils. Well, to go deeper in this, I'm excited to speak with someone who has been working in the space of AI, VR, and XR, immersive and extended reality long before it was the hype it is today. Martina Welkoff, managing partner of WXR Fund, an early-stage fund that invests in two of the greatest opportunities of our time, the next wave of computing, and yes, female entrepreneurs, with companies like Obsessed AI, Bots, and Embodied Labs in her portfolio. Before that, Martina first founded her first startup over a decade ago in mobile gaming, and after exiting that, went on to found a VR production studio called Convene AR. In this conversation, Martina shares how she sees the cycle and market shakeout, the danger of humanizing AI to the business opportunity of extended reality. We'll cover it all. Buckle up. Well, I always say I'm an entrepreneur at heart um, because I started two companies before moving over to the funding side of the equation and very much view fund building uh, in in a company building lens. I I think I'm a a builder at heart and I love to take ideas from zero to one and bring concepts into reality. So that's really a key driver for me, um, coupled with my passion around gender equity and social equity more broadly. I'd say if I had to boil it down to um, the key components of what really gets me up in the morning and gets me fired up, it's uh, building and specifically building a world that is more equitable for all people. Of course, we, we share that alignment there, but tell us specifically, I mean, I know you started Zlist, uh, which was really about gaming into the corporate setting and, and getting employee engagement. How did you first think about this work and bringing gaming into the fold? This is a common theme in my career where uh, it was not necessarily planned at the beginning, but it was sort of following one thread and following another. So Zlist actually started as a consumer-facing in-person experience, and we were designing games for um, hundreds and then thousands of people in Seattle to come to events and. And using the games to facilitate really meaningful and novel interactions. So kind of get getting beyond a normal networking event. And um, this was back in, you know, 2010, 2011. So it's, it's more commonplace now, but uh, at the time there weren't really a lot of people thinking this way. And eventually we had multiple companies approach us and ask um, to do these sorts of events for their employees. And one, one um, Fortune 500 company asked us to do an internal event, which ended up that single event surpassed our revenue for um, the entire consumer-facing business for the month. And and we thought, okay, this is interesting. And we ended up pivoting first over to a B2B model and then eventually uh, brought everything onto a mobile platform. And we actually launched that platform with a different Fortune 500 company in 14 countries. And they had um, employees playing globally, asynchronously, and our reach was just um, you know much, much broader and our scale uh, got pretty exciting and compelling at that point. So it really, you know, we went from consumer facing in person, sort of more of a service oriented model to a mobile 
B2B enterprise platform. What were some of, I guess, your key uh, learnings there as a founder that scaled significantly over the six years? Well, what I often tell CEOs I work with now is that especially early on, and this is probably true for the entire journey, but for me, it was particularly true early on. I had a very clear idea of where I thought things would go and how I thought the product and the, the experience would play out. And that, while it's good to have a clear vision, I think my attachment to some of those assumptions actually blinded me to what the data was showing me. And that first pivot from B2C to B2B took longer than it probably could have because I was really attached to a certain uh, trajectory and, and uh, my assumptions about how that would play out. And so I always uh, advise CEOs to you know hold those assumptions loosely and make sure you're being very disciplined and rigorous about listening to the data and, and uh, reevaluating constantly uh, what you think to be true because uh, there's just so much learning in the early days. And generally, we are wrong about a lot of things. And if we can uh, really listen to our customers and really build a meaningful data set that uh, points us in the right direction, I think that's when great companies are born. That's a, a big one, I, I think, in terms of sort of confirmation bias and making sure you don't design to create the actual answers that, that you want, right? Um, to actually act upon it. So interesting. So you did this for six years. Did you exit this company? How, how did the sort of transition happen at this? stage. We did. So it was actually acquired by University of Washington. It's a sort of highly atypical deal in that it went into a university rather than, you know, most uh, products spin out. And it's been commercialized in higher ed since. So I continue to be an advisor um, at this point, uh, you know, not not very involved, but still very connected to the team running it internally and um, excited about what it's doing in education now. So with that exit under your belt, you then went on to convene others around virtual reality and sort of, you know, extended reality beyond that, that took you to become a funder. So around the time of the Zealist exit, I, I was you know, very embedded in a gaming community here in Seattle. And a lot of folks in gaming were moving into virtual reality or very curious about the possibilities of virtual reality. And so a few, a couple of key peers of mine really encouraged me to explore that. And I was just enamored with the idea of an infinite digital landscape and particularly what that could mean from a social interaction standpoint, because prior to that, I was limited to, you know, a mobile screen and that real estate is, I mean, there's there's great constraints there um, that can be really fun to work with. But when you're talking about an immersive and expansive sort of endless environment, um, I was just very, very excited about almost going back to my roots of the in-person events, but taking that into a digital realm. So I started convene with the intent to experiment with social interaction and specifically look at creating shared memory and what it looked like to have an experience in virtual reality and, and share that with others um, and, and sort of how close we could get to a, a lived experience in the real world, which it turned out even back in you know, 2016, 2017, when we started this, we could get fairly close, which was very exciting to me. And I was really just in experimental mode with that. I was collaborating with a lot of great artists like Drew Kataaka, who I know is a common, a shared friend. And um you know, she was one of the first people I worked with out of the gate to bring women into virtual reality and have really meaningful conversations about the political moment we were in at the beginning of 2017 with the Women's March and everything happening in that transition. Um, and as luck would have it, uh, I, I got some inbound interest uh, from funders uh, at that point, and I was not looking for external funding. I really wanted to uh, have some more time to um, explore and, you know, before, before I had kind of the pressure of uh, commercializing. Uh, but 
but I became good friends with one of those funders who reached out. And after many conversations, um, he encouraged me to think about starting a, a fund focused on women in the space. And the opportunity that we saw at that point um, that was very salient was, you know, as we move from a two-dimensional to three-dimensional interaction paradigm, not only does everything change technically and there's a lot of opportunity to innovate, there's also an opportunity to shape the culture fundamentally at that foundational level and change norms around leadership and change the narrative essentially. And that's where I got most excited in the, the idea of investing in women at that nascent stage because I think we, and, and I think the XR industry to some extent has actually done this very effectively and maybe WXR has been a part of that in showcasing and making visible the work that, that women leaders were already doing and coupling that with the resources to help them scale. Um, and you know the, the numbers are slightly better in the XR space um, than tech more broadly in terms of early stage funding. And I, I think the ripple effect over time could be quite profound in, in seeding um, the, the XR industry with a very different set of leaders at the table, a more diverse set of leaders. I think, you know, when, when people are looking at XR and seeing these incredible women CEOs leading the charge alongside men that, you know, there's just a, a more balanced narrative there that could take hold and help encourage other women to enter the fold as well. There's a couple of questions that comes out from that, you know, that, that I love to dive into. But first, explain to us a little bit about your thesis, right? I was looking up a, a couple of definitions and one that I actually really liked in terms of of explaining the metaverse was the one that you quoted about Bitcraft. The metaverse is here when the digital life is almost more important than the physical. Um, and that is almost part and parcel of sort of, as you said, the extended reality beyond the in real life IRL as you have it. What was your thesis here on where the world was moving? This is actually what's interesting about how quickly things are moving now because it's already changed pretty drastically. But back in 2016, I mean, VR has been around in some form for many decades at this point. You know, it originated in the there were experiments dating back to the 60s in the military, um, but it's only, you know, in the last it really since 2015, 2016, um, that there's been a, a more consumer ready version. And those those consumer ready versions, I should put in air quotes, because even in 2016, it was a very high barrier to entry for consumers. And so there's been there's been hardware constraints, um, both from a cost and comfort standpoint, but also just technically, you know, those early headsets were quite difficult to set up and had a lot of have had a lot of bugs to work through. Uh, it's come a long way in the uh, last few years and now it is possible I actually have a headset right next to me here that you can just take out of the box and it's pretty much ready to go so obviously that's very exciting but I've actually moved away from I would say back in 2016 I was thinking of a very sort of hardware centric view of the space and what was possible and obviously hardware is still a very important component but I'm now thinking of it much more of a spectrum of um, intimacy and immersiveness on, on a scale from you know we have a lot of interesting experiences available on mobile that um, with augmented reality and the increased possibilities there that allow sort of a taste of a different immersive experience and also an integration with the natural world, which I'm very excited about. So it's not always, you know, VR is about putting on a headset and removing yourself from the natural world and immersing yourself in the digital world, which is exciting, um, but not necessarily how, you know, we're going to live our lives day in, day out. And so I think augmented reality and the possibility with mobile and heads-up displays uh, offers a, a parallel and alternate um, interaction paradigm that is 
you know, part of that spectrum. And that spectrum is always going to be evolving and the hardware that's facilitating those interactions is going to be evolving. I think some folks are already living in what we would sort of classify as the metaverse. Um, and then others may have never had uh, never had an experience that would sort of qualify with, on that end of the spectrum. Um, but I think in the next few years, we will increasingly see people, and, and maybe we won't call it the metaverse. I think that's the other interesting thing about all of this is the terminology is constantly shifting and certain groups will adopt I mean, XR is another example. XR was in the name of our fund, WXR. Um, but I don't think XR as a moniker ever really became commonly adopted. And at this point, likely won't be what we end up calling it. Um, it's kind of like, you know, in the early days of the internet, we're talking about the information highway. <laughs> and obviously, that's not the not the phrase that ended up catching on. You talked about the, the challenge of, first of all, uh, VR. And, you know, the I, I think you had a chart with how there was hardware you know, powering it with 5G and all these dependencies, but really it skyrocketed in terms of forced mass adoption during the pandemic. So can you talk to us a little bit about how it's obviously accelerated, but has the view to implementing extended reality uh, and the extensions of what that means um, changed in the last couple of years? So I can only speak for myself because obviously there's a lot of different opinions out there on um, how how things have changed. I would say how my perspective has changed is I think in the early days and when I'm referring to early days, I'm talking about sort of the 2015-2016 era. Uh, there was really a community of builders around XR itself, um, around the technology, around the possibilities. And that was really important from a creation standpoint, I think, in sharing ideas um, across industries, across different kinds of applications because what we were really all trying to fundamentally figure out was the user interaction paradigm at its core. And um, and there was some great learnings by building a community in that way. How I now think about it um, in 2023 is that um, XR is part of a tool set in a, and, and it's more um, useful at this point to think about it in industry-specific terms. So I'll use an example from our portfolio, um, Prisms of Reality, which is an ed tech um, application that's uh, you know, building incredibly transformative math and um, science learning tools in virtual reality. And for that company, I think it's it's more useful to think of them uh, in sort of the education space. And they happen to be using XR, VR as the tool and medium that they're... Um, they Hold that thought. Ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast? Okay, so I don't actually know, but I do know that 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot. And for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startup scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big off your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com startups. They're reaching their users, but you know I think they're education first, and VR is just the the tool versus a VR company first, and um, segmenting them kind of in the XR category as their primary identifier. So, and I actually think it's been a healthy evolution to move away from that. I think it's an indication of maturity for the industry overall that the and I went and I'm using industry sort of in both senses here, but um, you know to think about domain specific or vertical specific categories as the the primary and most important taxonomy. And then XR. And the other thing about that is that uh, a lot of companies are using VR or AR in tandem with other tools, in tandem with maybe 2D mobile tools or, or WebXR, which is an interesting category in itself. And so it's not such a primary and rigid indicator as it was back in 2016, which I think is actually very healthy. 
I think you're right. It it shows a little bit of the sophistication of, you know, this is just an element of that tool set. And looking at the way then that you viewed sort of the future of this integration, one of the key standouts in terms of an industry is retail for you, um, evidenced by your investment into Obsess AI, right? Where they sort of create that immersive experience. How do you think this will move forward now that, you know, there's questions about where does this stand? You know, was that the hype because of the pandemic with retail? Is this still going to be the hype of the next decade? So Obsess is a fantastic example for a lot of reasons. And I actually just returned from an Obsess board meeting. So it's all fresh in my memory. Um, They actually started with a more VR-centric approach. And they built um, a lot of VR AR applications, both in headset and for mobile in the early days. And then they evolved to more of a a web interaction approach. So the, the bulk of the products that they're launching into the world now with their brand and retail partners are uh, web experiences that are immersive in 3D. You can act, you can uh, navigate right from the browser into these beautiful stores that are uh, both, you know, three, some, in some cases, 3D renderings of real world physical stores. In other cases, completely computer generated, um, you know, fantastical, very cool environments. Uh, but regardless, it provides a much more um, engaging shopping experience uh, than a typical e-commerce flat site where you're just, you know, scrolling through 2D images. Um, and the other great thing that they've integrated are social tools. So you can now shop with friends and have a much more sort of fun and interactive experience as part of that 3D shopping. Um, and then recently, they actually came full circle and launched a, um, uh, an Oculus experience that it's a, a yoga experience that you can now uh, put on the headset and be back fully immersed. So they're, they're kind of offering that full, full spectrum suite at this point. And um, I mean, I can say just from an engagement metric standpoint that uh, it does not seem to be cooling off post-pandemic. They have really, really incredible engagement metrics um, from their end users in, in these experiences. And I think having an accessible via web is helping with that. You know, the e-commerce category more broadly is not growing quite as fast, but it is, you know, growing. And um, I think that that trend line in the long term, there's probably, you know, at any given moment, if you're looking at a, a smaller time segment, there's going to be, it's going to ebb and flow. But the trend line, if you zoom out, is continuing to go up. I mean, that is going to be a way that um, more and more users continue to shop and making those shopping experiences more entertaining, integrating gaming mechanics, integrating social mechanics, um, and just more visually stimulating and something more akin to what we might experience in a store. And could you talk a little bit about this, um, I guess, the business model of retail and XR and everything that comes out from it in the heyday, um, there was sort of the example of Dolce & Gabbana, right? Um, I think they made something like $6 million with a combination of, uh, what, what would you call it, fidgetal between the digital, physical yes. and digital <laughs> assets. Will we still see versions of this or was that just, you know, a, a blip in the radar? Well, I, do, I, think, I think there's still a lot of exciting experimentation happening. I would say it just broad sweeps there we are in an experimental phase with a lot of this and I, I do think brands are still there's still a lot of appetite for that experimentation and innovation um, but the lanes so to speak haven't been chosen you know I think there's uh, there's still a lot of data that we need to collect more broadly and also consumer behavior is changing so rapidly that to some extent, you know, brands are trying to play catch up or trying to get ahead of that and understand what that's going to look like in this new in, in this new paradigm that we're moving into, which of course AI is a big part of as well, which I know we're going to touch on. But um, I, I think that um, 
there are brands who are zeroing in on what works for them. And each each brand is a little bit different. Obviously, luxury is very different than, uh, you know, mass market. And there's all of these sort of specific demographic factors that that shape that as well. And it's not a one size fits all framework that's going to work for brands. But I do think that, you know, experimentation will continue. And there's there's going to be more and more options available to consumers and how to engage with a brand. I mean, it's not it's it's similar to what we've seen happen with social media in that, you know, now it's just table stakes for every brand to have social media presence and for that to be part of how they engage with their customers. But that was an evolution. That was a process. And some brands were quicker to that change than others. And in some and, and each has their sort of own flavor and strategy for how they facilitate that. And, and similarly, as we get into these digital physical interactions and different modes of um, engaging consumers, each brand is going to sort of come up with their own formula for that and, and what cocktail works for them. Um, but I'm excited to see the experimentation. I'm excited to see some of the really strong commercial results. You know, I think that's at the end of the day, the most important thing. This has to have high ROI and be compelling if, if some of these uh, tools are going to be sustainable. And um, another great example of that from our portfolio that I think is interesting is a company called Bods and their uh, um, immersive uh, try-on tool to determine real fit. And there's a lot of these out there, um, but what's really interesting about Bods is with two photos, a frontward facing photo and a side facing photo, they can actually generate a um, very accurate 3D avatar of of your body. And then with 3D garments, you can see true fit. It's not just sort of the paper doll approach where you're putting a garment over, you know, an overlay of, of your skin tone and you can maybe see, does the color make your eyes pop or something like that? But this will this will show you, does it pinch in the armpit? Where does it fall on the knee? Where, you know, the, the true fit of the garment, which can drastically reduce returns, which is a huge, huge issue with e-commerce right now. I mean, the amount of waste, both in terms of dollars and um, for our planet, I mean, the fashion waste is a huge, huge carbon cost. And so something like BODs can drastically reduce returns, which has very clear ROI for the consumer and the brand. Fascinating. And I love how sort of sustainability uh, is brought into the picture with with BODs there. And I guess in a way justifies definitely the business case of this experimentation for brands. But as you're speaking, I mean, as an investor into these companies that are enabling these experiences uh, for the big brands, right? How are the big brands reacting in in today's market? market conditions. I mean, you know, one of the key things that we connect upon is, of course, our alignment on diversity. And we've seen a fall off, right? Clearly for female-led venture capital firms, for female founders, uh, diversity, ESG, and things like obsessed AI experiences may not be prioritized. How is this affecting your investments? Yeah, it's a, it's no secret that it is a sort of tough macroeconomic environment out there. And I think this is where uh, ROI becomes absolutely imperative. And, and when we're talking about this experimental space, uh, brands do no longer necessarily have the discretionary budget to just throw a few things up and see see what works. And if it doesn't work, no big deal. I mean, there's a, there's a lot more uh, scrutiny and a lot more uh, discipline around how new spends get justified at this point or how existing spends, you know, how do you justify continuing making that investment? So I think having the very clear ROI that at the end of the day touches the bottom line um, is the best way for applications to succeed. I, I was about to say in this market, but really it's, it, that is always the best approach. And I think we lost sight of that um, in the, the previous cycle and in 2021 when money was free and everything was flowing. I think 
things got a little out of hand in some ways, you know, especially in venture capital and what we saw with valuations. And so um, while this is sort of a painful moment, and I am especially sensitive to what you alluded to with um, investment falling off for female founders and, and managers, I do think in the broad scheme of things, this is a healthy reset. And, you know, coming back to an environment where capital efficiency and business fundamentals are valued in a way that we lost sight of, we know from you know, an extensive body of research at this point that women-led companies do tend to be more capital efficient and and think about risk differently. I, I just, I think you actually posted this reframing of the way we think about risk. I saw it on your gen feed the other day. I think it's just so crucial to realize that it's, uh, you know, it's not that women are risk averse. It's a different lens for risk, which in this particular um, environment actually sets women up really well for success. And so I think as long as we can continue to show up, and I'm speaking just we more broadly than of course, in my portfolio as well, as long as our companies can continue to demonstrate that ROI and continue to say, look, this this product pays for itself within three months because of our increased conversion rate or because um, we're increasing traffic in this way or, you know, at the end of the day, demonstrating with numbers why their product is um, superior and generating better results than other strategies. Those are the applications that will ultimately dominate. I can speak from our portfolio. Our CEOs have been thinking that way uh, for years. It's it's nothing new. It's not something that just in the last six months they've had a different mindset. And I think that's going to serve them really well through this difficult period. It's what we've been seeing as well. Um, you know, a lot of times people ask me, why do you think uh, women are so capital efficient? And the hard truth is that they've been under-resourced for the longest time and underfunded. And so they've had to operate in a capital efficient manner. So like you said, this is not new news. They've, they're used to this environment and in fact will continue to thrive in this environment. And we're starting to, to continue to see the outperformance, right? You know, that the numbers have continued to show that women outperform. And I love how you're, you're thinking about this. Um, as we talk about sort of learnings from from the different cycles and you know we're clearly in a different cycle and as we're entering a different cycle you're also entering a new chapter with starting a new fund on your own what are your learnings from your time in WXR that you are taking into Goldenrod? Many things but a couple of key things one um, I think WXR was a very important fund for a moment in time that we talked about earlier sort of that nascent foundational stage of the industry or that the uh, user interaction shift and I, my, one of my big epiphanies was that putting by putting technology at the core of the thesis in the way that we did, it to some extent created a shelf life because of that rapid evolution of, of the landscape um, more broadly. And this was you know just in the matter of a, a few years. And I wanted to craft a thesis that was a little bit more about the vision I saw um, playing out in the world and some of those trend lines and something that would have more longevity um, and, and give us... Uh, freedom to adapt and and evolve um, our own strategy along the way. And so the thesis is looking at the uh, digital and physical integration of our experiences, relationships, and identities, and that increased intimacy and pervasiveness of technology in our everyday lives. So really fundamentally examining how our, rela- our human relationship with technology is shifting and what that means for, um, for businesses. And because that's a broader thesis in many ways, I brought in some thematic discipline to balance that. And so the core verticals will be investing in our climate, health, media, and community. And those verticals are both where I see the most um, economic opportunity in the next few years, as well as um, outsized opportunity for impact. I love these. I've been taking notes here. Intimacy, pervasiveness. Uh, That brings me to a great segue of ChatGPT and AI taking over our lives in so many different ways. Does this worry you at all? 
I guess yes, but not, but I am also very excited. So I think the pace of this change is worrying in that I don't think we as a society are equipped to deal with some of those ramifications. And obviously this is part of a bigger conversation that's been playing out around ethics and AI and when it's appropriate to release a product. So I do think that's concerning and I do think it's unleashed just a whole new way of playing the game that none of us frankly really understand, including the people designing the products to some extent. And it's very exciting to think about what it could mean for new companies and the way they develop their products, the way they engage with users, and just how quickly some of those things could happen and how quickly the learnings can happen. I just hope that we have thoughtful people grounded in, you know, firm ethical territory who are leading the way, because I think that's our best defense against, you know, some of the the darker, more dystopian outcomes that I've seen forecasted. That motivates me even further to um, fund gender diverse teams, because I think the the more perspectives we have represented and, and leading the way, the fewer blind spots we'll have and the and the better those products that come out of those design cycles will serve a broader population. You know, if we have a very homogenous group of people, it, historically that's been largely male and largely white dominated, uh, that means that they're only coming from that lived experience and that perspective. Yeah. And, and what applications are you seeing? I mean, from climate, health, media, community, are there particular AI applications that excite you at this point in your pipeline? I'm trying to think where to start because there's actually so many. So I'll, I'll start with just sort of a trend that I'm seeing, which I think is really exciting, is even companies that have existed, you know, startups that maybe have existed for a couple of years at this point, are finding really exciting ways to integrate um AI into their uh, product or, or into their product roadmap and uh, either improve efficiency or unlock new modes of, of user interaction. So I think that's a, a super exciting trend that regardless of, I, I think every every startup needs to be thinking about that, You know, where both internally and maybe ultimately externally, they can integrate some of these tools to improve their efficiency and improve their user experience ultimately. Um, on the climate side, where I'm seeing that, I think that, you know, there's just so many opportunities to improve efficiency in our existing systems. And one company um, I've been following is Tangible out of uh, Portland, Oregon, and they are building a um, platform for commercial development. You know, there's huge, huge carbon costs to commercial development. And they are bringing together that huge data sets um, from everything from vendors and suppliers and building materials and just all of the places where these carbon costs are accumulated in the development process. And then using AI to find for any given project to find the places where efficiency could be improved. And those there's, you know, opportunity for carbon saving, um, both in the development process, but then ultimately when the building is up and running um, to to make it a more you know sustainable and green development uh, in perpetuity. So I think that's that's very very exciting, and um, the the AI that they're applying will, as they work with more customers and as those data sets build, will just uh, get better and better over time. And that's obviously key to any AI application. It's only as good as the the data set that is that is feeding it ultimately. And so being very intentional and aggressive about making sure that those those data sets are the appropriate set of information in order to improve a product is very important. Um, another example that's actually in our WXR portfolio, um, but I think taking it to a different side of kind of just the, the human piece of AI interaction is a company called Empathic here. It's here in Seattle. 
and it's just the letter M, pathic, in case people are looking it up. And it's actually the empathy layer for uh, communication, whether that's AI or human-generated. And they've been building on GPT for uh, years now, since 2020. The CEO is a clinical psychologist who, uh, prior to launching Empathic, developed a game for other psychologists to practice their empathy skills before going into session with a patient. And that the data that that game generated became the data set um, on which Empathic was originally built. So it's highly proprietary, highly unique in that it, it's really trained by this broad group of professionals who have a high degree of expertise in, in empathy and, and in effective communication. Um, and now they're using that to um, correct in real time communication that might be from a bot or it could actually be from a human, but making that communication more effective and, and ultimately more uh, more likely to connect with the human on the other end of that interaction. Um, and I just think that's so exciting because I think a lot of what's happening right now, there's there's kind of a lot of angst and existential worry about what all of this will mean for humans and what this will mean for our ability to uh, be, you know, thriving, productive uh, people in the world. And I think applications like Empathic are showing a pathway that is harmonious and and ultimately better than the interactions we have available to us now without extracting our own um, our own special characteristics and humanity that still I think will continue to be very important yeah Martina I, I'll ask you one final question before we go into the rapid fire here but your explanation of empathic is fascinating but also worrying I mean the first thought is that movie her right where uh, basically using this product the AI becomes a little bit more human. And one of the challenges that we're seeing right now with, with ChatGPT and OpenAI is uh, the hallucinations that are coming out from it uh, without clear factual, you know, uh, and, and referencing of, of where these sources of information come from. As we train the AI uh, to be, the, the bots to be a little bit more human, as a mother and an investor investing into the future, how do you think about the ethics of the unintended consequences and, and creating the guardrails here so that we're not, you know, I don't know, going into this dystopian uh, a future of being, uh, I don't know, dependent of AI and of, of a different reality that's not in real life. For sure. And I, I think I will preface this with the years of the years I've spent in XR thus far have sort of changed my definition to some extent of what qualifies of reality, because I think I think digital interactions, digital experiences are very much reality in the sense of, you know, they're impacting our experience. And um, and VR is an example. In the early days, experience, I spent so much time in the headset, I wouldn't recommend this, but I spent so much time in the headset when I was first learning that I would have trouble distinguishing in some in some cases whether a conversation happened in VR or real life because it all sort of blended in the way that my brain was ultimately coding it. And um, I think that we have to be very intentional as, and this is where I worry that, you know, we're really playing catch up at this point and it's going to be difficult but not impossible to um, build some some digital literacy and, and critical thinking muscles that help individual users to discern those boundaries and put some parameters around product design um, to, as you said, you know, put in guardrails for when interactions could become harmful. And, and we can look to social media for this. I hope we can get ahead of it because obviously everything with social media at this point is very reactive and highly imperfect and it's never going to be perfect. But I think there are ways we can build thoughtfully and, and you know, from working with Empathic specifically, you know, they have clinical psychologists on staff. They have a clinical psychologist as a CEO and, and who also, by the way, happens to lead a group called Therapists in Tech advocating for psychology 
Scientologist to be a part of every tech company, regardless of the application, so that there are people internally thinking about how this will impact the human psyche. And so I think when we have people like that in the driver's seat or people like that being an active part of the conversation and not solely psychologists. I mean, there's there's all sorts of backgrounds that are important to incorporate here. Um, we can play out some of those scenarios and, and get ahead of them, as well as there's always going to be surprises in the wild. So as well as have the ability to recognize and respond more quickly when there is something that is, is you know, harmful or kind of moving in a direction that was unintended and um, could go into kind of that dystopian narrative. So I am a bit of a broken record here and how I think about this. But ultimately, I think the technology is still being built by humans at the end of the day. And if we get the right humans around the table and we create environments where those voices are really respected and listened to, we can build products that will cause less harm. It's never it's never going to be perfect. I am an optimist at the end of the day. And I also recognize that unfortunately, there, there will be unintended harm. However, I think we can minimize that if we have a, a different way of thinking about product development that is not solely about maximizing scale and profits, but also incorporating that human impact to to the, the process. And I think people are increasingly demanding that and expecting that. And we're in sort of, a, I, I think we're just in the awareness building phase. I think, uh, unfortunately, behavior change is, is further down the pipeline. However, I think there's more awareness and more of a um, both consumer and, you know, from a policy perspective, regulators are paying more attention to this. I don't think that's ultimately going to be the forcing function. But I think having that pressure and having more scrutiny applied from a variety of angles will help to force behavior change in how we think about product development and how we think about which perspectives are valuable in that process. Love it. And so clearly, I, I could go on for hours with you because I have so many questions that even came up from that response, but we are time limited here. And I do want to jump to billion dollar questions, rapid fire. First thing that comes to mind uh, for you. And the first question is, what do people get wrong about your work? I think with gender and gender lens investing more broadly, a lot of people tend to think about it in almost a philanthropic realm. And at the end of the day, we are very much an economically driven bottom line fund. And we are, you know, commercially um, competitive with with other fund managers. And so that's that's one thing that I've noticed, even with a lot more education about gender lens investing, there's still sometimes an association with it being a less profitable way when in fact, the opposite is true. Indeed, AA. And what do people get wrong about you? Mm, I think that I'm often, I'm a very, very friendly person. And I like that about myself. And I think that sometimes masks how competitive I also am. And that, and I think, think people are sometimes surprised if they see me around a poker table, for example, when that competitive side really kicks in. So I think my friendliness sometimes masks uh, the, the shark underneath sometimes. Ooh, I love it. The shark underneath. And I know you use it wisely. <laughs> yeah. A habit you've picked up that has changed your life for the better. It's been a habit I've had for a while now, but yoga for me is an absolutely crucial part to maintaining my sanity and wellness. What would you tell your younger self? Not to worry about how it will all come together. I've always been, and this is actually still true, but especially when I was younger, I was always trying to figure out and plan, you know, the next step the next years and, and understand the trajectory. And um, I've since, you know, especially in hindsight, it's easy to say, but uh, it, it, it's all worked out and the surprises and twists and turns along the way were really the best part. So I think just to relax and uh, enjoy the moment and listen to the, the signals at any given time. Oh, and on that note, what makes you happy? 
it really makes me happy to spend time with people who are doing, who are, are living lives that um, make an impact in the world. And that happens to be entrepreneurs a lot of the time for me, although, of course, other people fit into that bucket as well. But I find I am happiest um, when I'm in a room full of people who are building and taking risk and uh, really living their, their values in a meaningful way. Yeah. What's your biggest insecurity? Uh, I think as uh, you alluded to being a mother, I have a two and a half year old daughter now. And I think my biggest insecurity is always weighing whether my choices are also the best choices for her and our family. And I think that's an interesting tension in line to walk at any given time. What's an opinion you have that most people don't agree with? Oh, I love this question. It's actually a question I used to ask in, in interviews. And my answer has changed over time, actually. Or, or there's you know a variety of answers. But I don't know if most people would disagree with this, but I think certainly some would. And um, I have come to believe that it really is possible to uh, have a balanced and healthy personal life and have a fast moving, highly ambitious career. I used to honestly believe those two things were incompatible. And I think a lot of people still do. And I'm not saying it is every day possible and every moment. But I think net over a long period of time, I, I think I can have a truly fulfilling and grounded and healthy personal life, as well as the high octane career that I want to have and that those two things are not incompatible. Love that. And finally, this is a, a bonus one. So, you know, we have billionaires, uh, anything connected to the word billion, unicorn founders and the backers of these unicorns on the show. What would be your billion dollar question for the next guest? Ooh, I, you know, what comes to mind is the sacrifices along the way. How do you, I think in any, in any life path, but particularly highly ambitious, you know, ceiling breaking, uh, you know, narrative changing kinds of trajectories, there are going to be sacrifices along the way. And I think it's really interesting to talk to leaders about how they make decisions about what to sacrifice at key moments and um, what, you know, where their, where their boundaries are around that. Mm, love that. And I will be recording that for the next guest and I will send it to you. Well, Martina, this has been excellent. And frankly, you know, I congratulate you on already starting to change the narrative and ceiling breaking in so many ways. And I'm grateful for your sacrifice of time and insights here for, for our guests on Billion Dollar Moves. And I'm wishing you the very best. I know, you know, it will only be upwards from here. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. And I so appreciate being a guest and everything that you're doing. Um, this is just such a great conversation you're hosting. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show. Hold that thought. My First Million, hosted by Sam Parr and Shan Puri, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My First Million features amazing guests like Alex Hormozzi, Sophia Omoroso, Hassan Minaj, sharing their secrets for how they made their first million and how to apply their learnings to capitalize on today's business trends and opportunities. An episode I really liked, a recent one on how Sam's mother-in-law built a million-dollar Etsy business out of nothing. And I believe it involves hellos. So listen to My First Million wherever you get your podcasts. On Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.